Hello and welcome back to the Asset Allocator podcast where we try to look under the bonnet of the market with leading asset allocators. I'm David Thorpe, contributing editor at Asset Allocator and this is the final Asset Allocator podcast of the year. And joining me today are Alex Funk, Chief Investment Officer at Schroeder's Investment Solutions and as ever, David Baxter, Funds Editor at Investors Chronicle. Thank you both for joining me today. Really good to be here. Thanks. Alex, um, what lessons from what has been, I think it's fair to say, an eventful 2022 can we take into 2023 from a market's perspective? I think the number one thing to remember from 2022 is that correlations can go to one pretty quickly. Uh, and so diversification remains remains your friend, specifically in a multi-asset context, and understanding where I can find diversification when rates move up quite aggressively alongside more persistent inflation. So I think that's the key theme of what drove volatility in 2022. And the lessons we learned from that is how we can prepare for, for other periods like this. I don't think 2023 looks very similar in terms of persistent increase in interest rates alongside uh, stubbornly high inflation, uh, and so potentially not for the next cycle, but for periods going forward multi-asset investing. Thank you. David Baxter, I mean, it's a, it must be a perennial uh, question uh, for your readers uh, around diversification. How, how do they think about it? What have you been hearing from them this year? Yeah, I think, um, I suppose I'm perhaps echoing what Alex said, but um, I think what's perhaps interesting is this year has kind of reiterated how difficult it is to find genuine diversifiers so for example kind of everyone everyone's loved the you know infrastructure investment trusts um, and real assets more generally but they have taken a bit of a hit um just i suppose a few weeks or a month or two ago on the back of um kind of bond yields rising so i suppose alex it'd be interesting to kind of hear um you know what what do you think is still the kind of reliable diversifiers uh is there anything that has kind of maybe surprisingly kind of held up quite well this year? Yeah, yeah, it's a good one, David. And I think perhaps we reflect as to what sort of worked in our portfolios in the last year, and then we can talk about where we are now and potentially what could work going forward. So I think for us, there were sort of three key things uh, that really help portfolios and help us uh, protect investors when, when drawdowns were quite severe. And the first one was being really defensive within alternatives. And so when I say alternatives, yes, I refer to things like real assets that you've mentioned, uh, but in some reality, they carry a lot of beta or a lot of market sensitivity as well. So where, where we created some protection for investors is being in equity market neutral hedge funds, being in trend-following strategies, being in sort of uh, more macro-trending um, strategies within the CTA space as well. And that really created uh, diversified returns to both equities and, and bonds. The second one was that it was, it was evidently clear that when the central banks started increasing interest rates, that this was going to happen at pace. And so I think it was quite difficult to say, I'm going to take all the bonds out of my portfolio because there is still some protection uh, uh, characteristics within fixed income, but you needed to reduce that interest rate sensitivity. So, so cutting duration quite aggressively within portfolios was another sensible uh, decision to make within portfolios. In absolute terms, you would have still lost money. You would have just lost a lot less than you would have in sort of a um, you know index-weighted bond return. And then the last thing was really around sort of style positioning within your portfolios. So thinking a little bit about you know broadly value versus growth, and and we saw that flip flop quite a lot during the year. 
But if you add the cumulative performance together, value has really been um, the supported factor. And there's probably two reasons for that. One is, you know, the increase in interest rates uh, is beneficial for some parts of the value market. And secondly, you know, it's been an energy crisis. Uh, and that's really created a tailwind, I think, for, for the energy sector, uh, of much of which is in the value component within global markets as well. So I think the combination of those three aspects is really where investors have, have benefited this year relative to quite a volatile year in investment markets. What do you think could be the major driver of performance and returns and, and markets generally in 2023? So I think, David, where we are today, right, if we think about bond yields, you know, there was a stage where in the US 10-year it was 4%, right, or even above 4%. So potentially going forward, a lot of the bad news is priced into, into bond yields. Uh, and we're seeing bond yields actually come off in the US, which probably means that the market thinks that the Federal Reserve will cut rates towards the back end of next year or the year beyond that, right? So potentially bonds provide more protection than they have this year, right? So we can start thinking about the bond and equity correlation trying to restore some normality around that. But there are sort of three key things I think we need to be on the lookout for 2023 that will determine the next economic cycle. It will probably allow us to start thinking about uh, uh, new pricing effects, uh, new bottoms potentially, and then sort of reweighting equity risk in the portfolio. And I think the first one is we need to see a downward trend in persistent inflation. So what we've what we've seen already is one print in the U.S. Uh, of better better nominal numbers from an inflation perspective, but I think we need to keep our eye on core inflation. So headline inflation includes the more sort of sensitive aspects, you know, such as energy cost. That sticky component in core, we really want to see that sort of continue to roll over and confirm that that's a peak. So all eyes on the next inflation print this week. The second bit we're looking at is the um, is the labor market. So the labor market's extremely tight, right? So what does that mean? So there's two jobs for every person, right? That means that companies are really struggling uh, to fill those vacant positions. So we want to see that turnover, and we can see that in sort of two ways. One, we expect to see vacancies uh, come down. So it's much easier to start hiring less people than it is to starting to lay off people. But as margin compression continues, and we'll talk about that in a second, um, we will start seeing unemployment rate to move up as well. And that will sort of give us an indication to the uh, to the next part of the cycle. So softer labor markets are really important because I think the risk here is wage price spiral. So what does that mean? Again, it means as I earn more money, I spend more money, I drive up goods inflation, and you can see it's sort of a bit of a circular reference. And then the last bit is, as we said, I think markets have really priced in a lot of bad news in fixed income. Potentially, they haven't priced in a lot of bad news in the equity market yet. So what is definitely clear is that interest rates moved up aggressively in 2022. It takes a little while for that to filter through into companies. So no doubt we will start seeing margin compression in companies. And currently we're seeing earnings down sort of 3-5%. Now if we think about previous cycles, we need to be looking at earnings down 10 to 15%. So there is a lot of movement from 3 to 15%. And that's potentially a conversation around a hard versus a soft landing as well. So I think looking for sort of downward pressure on earnings will be important. So the combination of those three factors, I think, will give you a clearer indication as to which the next part of the cycle is. And remember, we have to remind ourselves that the equity market can be forward-looking. And so ultimately, when we start seeing more evidence of those sort of bottoming out, we can start thinking about pricing in, uh, pricing in those risks and then what do we think about forward expectations. Thank you for that, Alex. Um, David, what do you, uh, what do your readers and your, your contacts in the market, what's what's keeping them awake at night as we look to twenty twenty three? I mean, yeah, I, I think it's perhaps still the uncertainty over the 
eventual direction of both kind of interest rates and the economy. Um, and it's been interesting um, to have seen the kind of um, discussions this year about the, the concepts of kind of stagflation and what, what that might mean. Um, but um, yeah, I, th- I think it's interesting what Alex said about, um, you know, kind of asset classes that have already priced in perhaps the apocalypse or, or at least some bad news and, and those that haven't. Um, Alex, I was, I was going to ask you um, a slightly different question, but with, given what you've said about kind of bonds pricing in lots of pain and yields are quite interesting there, but equities perhaps haven't, um, does that, would that kind of influence how you would put together an income portfolio? You know, do you, do you see bonds kind of edging out different asset classes now that those yields are a bit more interesting for, for the first time in a long time? Yeah, it's a very good point. And if you look at, you know, certain equity markets, the dividend yield is now lower than that of the fixed income yield, right? So it makes fixed income investing a lot more attractive. And I think for sort of fixed income or income investors in general, um, things are looking more positive now because there's more more yield on offer both in equities, one, two, in fixed income, and then potentially some of those real assets that we discussed before as well. And naturally, the risk to income investors going forward is if we've moved in a into a different inflation regime, real incomes will be affected, right? So it would make sense that that yields on offer are higher because of adjustment for future inflation expectations as well. So I definitely think, um, you know, constructing an income portfolio gives you more options today, but it remains, it remains really important to sort of balance the income requirement with the growth component as well, um, making sure that you have, you know, growth assets in the portfolio that can ultimately drive up capital values over longer periods of time and sort of balancing that with more sort of variable yield targets or income targets and really finding a careful balance between those two. Thank you. And Alex, to bring together maybe a couple of those those points, um, for many years, many uh, allocators told us that they owned uh, government bonds in portfolios, even though there wasn't much yield, uh, because they acted as, as a dampener of volatility. Well, whatever one's view of the direction of bond yields in the year ahead, one of the things that's happened in 2022 is that they certainly haven't been a dampener of volatility. In fact, many government bonds have added volatility. Does that change the the strategic rationale for owning government bonds, even if there's a tactical reason to own them because of a call on inflation or something in the year ahead? The strategic reasons to own them for the long term, have they have they come into question? I think you've got to understand the reasons for why bonds have really struggled this year. And the reason for that is because you've had a really sharp move up in interest rates, so central banks have clearly not held back, and inflation is persistently increasing as well. right? So the combination of those aspects has hit both the equity market and the bond market for different reasons, but ultimately because of duration. So because cash flows are longer dated, and we know some of the equity market um, uh, is focused in the technology space because of prior success, so that was a net negative contributor there. And the same way as we know how interest rates affect bonds, uh, making newer bonds issues more attractive. So the combination of that has created that correlation issue. Now that bonds have ultimately reset and they've started to price in, i.e. the yield on offer now incorporates some of the more nearer-term inflation and potentially some of the longer-term inflation aspects, potentially the protective characteristics of bonds are better now than they were before. And so I think it would be very difficult to say that bonds no longer serve that purpose because we've had a bit of a reset in, you know, a decade of quantitative easing ultimately that drove those bond yields down. And then thinking about asset classes that have uh, underperformed this year but that perhaps could have a better 2023, 
How do you think about allocating to emerging market equities in the in the portfolio of Schroeder's investment solutions? Yeah, so I think emerging markets is interesting, and then maybe we'll go on to talking about sort of the broader portfolio as well. Sure. Um, so emerging markets and central banks have been a lot more on the front foot in increasing interest rates. So arguably, they're going to hit peak inflation and peak interest rates before developed markets. So that should be net benefit, right? The challenge you've got, though, if you if your base case and ours is, is that the developed world goes into a recession next year, uh, that doesn't really bode well for emerging markets, right? Uh, a lot of their sort of trading partners, a lot of their sort of benefit around the developed world will be shrinking as well because demand comes off uh, one and trading comes to to a slowdown, manufacturing comes off, service PMI starts to drop. This just doesn't benefit emerging markets in the same way. I think the next bit of the cycle when you're starting to add risk on again, you can start thinking about smaller companies, you can start thinking about emerging markets again, but I don't think we've seen that bottom yet. And that probably leads me on to the next bit is to say, well, well, where do we invest then, right? Mm-hmm. So if we're thinking into 2023, um, and I think the answer to that probably lies in sort of two scenarios. One is this sort of hard landing scenario, right? Mm-hmm. So the Fed increases interest rates, I mean, yesterday's print in the ISM services were not encouraging from a, from a you know, the economy is doing really well. And so we expect the Fed to continue to increase rates. Um, and that potentially means that the Fed aggressively continues to increase interest rates. They over tighten. It's a policy mistake. It ultimately forces the US into a recession because of the sort of catch up of how interest rates work. I think in that scenario, you want to remain quite defensive in your in your equity allocation. So having high quality businesses that can pass on some of those inflationary costs to consumers, being slightly more defensive. Um, but ultimately, investment grade credit is interesting as well. I'm not sure though that taking duration risk alongside investment grade credit makes sense in that scenario. So you know, being paid five six percent in the shorter end of investment grade going into that, you know, company balance sheets are in a good position. That probably looks attractive from a uh, from a hard landing scenario. The other one is probably to say, well, is there the soft landing? Is it possible? And we've seen in the past there's been one or two times that central banks has got it right. So the odds are not really in their favor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in this sort of softish landing, you would expect the previous leadership to continue to do well again. So we'd think, you know, there'd be a bit of a rally within the growth sector again. We'd see interest rates come off because inflation is, inflation pressures are ultimately easing. Uh, and so again, you could see that rotation continue within that space. I think to think about all of this though, that timing the bottom will be virtually impossible and analyzing previous cycles and thinking about previous bottoms it's always been better to be a little bit late and have confirmation that that recession is hit what does you know a sort of a trough in earnings look like than being early because being early you know still means that you could have had negative total returns through that period so it's often better when you're looking for sort of solution-based outcomes to look for confirmation in that, to still create that protection in the portfolio, and then meaningfully start to look at adding risk within that space. Thank you. Um, David Baxter, I'm sure your uh, readers are uh, determinedly trying to uh, call the bottom of various asset classes all the time, and they're asking you to write one of your columns on that on that theme. But um, how, how, do you, how, how, how are you thinking about, and how are your, your readers and contacts uh, thinking about that, that question? What does a defensive asset class look like right now? Yes, it is. It is the um, impossible question that people ask, isn't it? Kind of when has the market bottomed? Should I invest now? Should I invest in three weeks? And um, yeah, I suppose nobody really kind of knows. Um, it is interesting the idea of the kind of resurgence of um, 
perhaps some growth stocks and perhaps also you, you see some of the kind of quality oriented companies and funds, uh, the kind of lentil trains of, of this world. Um, you, you could go with the, the argument that um, those, those kind of holdings should hold it well if we see kind of more demand for, for pricing um, power and that kind of thing. Um, but um, yeah, as, as Alex mentioned, it's, it is impossible to time. I was, I was going to ask um, Alex, have you, to what extent have you kind of found yourself moving back into the kind of growth side of things? You know, have you already preemptively, uh, I suppose, taken advantage of what some might see as bargains or are you kind of keeping your powder dry for now? Yeah, I think it's the latter. So I think we're still sort of overweight value within the portfolio. We still have growth aspects because, again, I think timing factors are very difficult. Uh, and, and we're thinking about building sort of longer term outcomes for clients. So so we still overweight value in our global components, overweight value in the US specifically as well. Um, we do have a sl- slight growth bias within emerging markets. And the reasons for that is, is because we think that interest rates will probably peak there sooner. And that could be a little bit more supportive for some of these emerging market economies. But ultimately, there'll come a point in the cycle, as you mentioned, that you know, again, our base case is the sort of developed world recession that value shouldn't be supportive anymore. Because if you have a slowdown in economy, you have a slowdown in demand, these typical sort of large cyclical businesses shouldn't do well. I think the slight nuance. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Since you've had in the more recent time is, and let's be honest, this is the most uh, forecasted recession ever. Um, and so the nuance you've got is that energy is a big part of the value components. And because uh, the energy is continuing to face this sort of supply side dynamic, that has supported broader categories as well. I think the other one that's interesting and that's got a lot of attention in the near term is sort of more financials, uh, because clearly as interest rates move up, that benefits them. But the big question mark we should still have around that is saying, you know, if the consumer really does falter, if they do dwindle down all of their COVID savings, is there anyone to take on credit, right? And so is that really net beneficial to financials? So I think being diversified in your value components is going to be important as well. Thank you for that. Um, I'm afraid that is all we have time for, but thank you for joining me today, Alex Funk, Chief Investment Officer at Schroeder's Investment Solutions, and David Baxter, Funds Editor and Investors Chronicle. And thank you all for listening, not just today, but throughout the year. Do enjoy the holiday season. Try not to look at your portfolios too much over that time. And do remember to come back to us in the new year for future editions of the Asset Allocator podcast. Thank you. <laughs>